T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Tower cleared. Here we got a roll program. And as Apollo 11 does its roll program, this podcast now does its roll program. The tape is rolling. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Grant Cameron, and you're listening to the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. Thank you for taking time from your life to be here. Welcome to the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. My name is Grant Cameron, and today I'm doing a little bit of a series on nuclear weapons. I've um, just published an interview with Dr. Richard O'Connor. Uh, with a book he wrote about nuclear weapons, and today I want to talk about um, the basic principle uh, of nuclear weapons and why evil aliens would shut down nuclear missile silos. This is how it actually began for me, uh, and I didn't realize it for 30 years that my connection to UFOs started with um, an incident with nuclear weapons. So... um, for first of all, I'd like to point out that um, people are talking about how they could possibly shut down um, nuclear missiles. To me, nuclear missiles are basically the ultimate terrorist weapon. It's basically no different than blowing up a school bus full of kids. Basically, what you do is you drop nuclear weapons on civilians. Anybody that says that we're dropping it on military targets is, um, I think, mis- misled. Um, the idea is to terrorize whatever population you're dropping these weapons on to get the um, powers that be in that country, whatever that country is, to change their policy or to surrender. So um, it basically doesn't get any eviler than dropping uh, nuclear um, bombs on innocent civilians who have nothing to do with anything. And now we have hydrogen bombs that can take out hundreds of thousands of people at, at a time. LeMay even talked about this. He was the one that was in charge of the 8th Air Force. They dropped the two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, he also firebombed 63 cities in um, Japan and uh, cremated all these people alive. And, I was, and he even said that if the Americans had won, lost the war, he would have been tried as a war criminal. And he said, fortunately, we won the war. So these kind of terrorist weapons um, are used and um, the, the question would even come down to, um, have, has the intelligence behind the UFO phenomena actually stopped nuclear exchanges? Uh, we know they've shut down a bunch of uh, nuclear weapons um, uh, silos, which I'll talk about in this series. And they, uh, what I see in this, this whole um, situation is much more than just um, randomly shutting these things down. Um, I think there's a lot less random going on than people imagine. I'll get to that in a second. Um, I think what a lot of it is what I call the theory of wow. That basically um, this is um, indirect 
movements by the intelligence to send a message. I say, to me, the more I look at it, the more I think the UFO phenomenon is all about messaging. That's all it's about. Uh, trying to move us in a certain direction without interfering with um, our society, make, making us realize ourselves that this has to change, that has to change. We have to do this, a little bit of help with um, dropping materials and stuff to move us along, but trying to guide us um, into the next couple of centuries without blowing ourselves up. Bob Bigelow even described this um, situation when he was talking to George Knapp. He was the one that ran the uh, Skinwalker Ranch where the ASOP program, the famous $22 million ASOP program, was run. They were trying to find out all about the paranormal stuff there with the ports, the manifestations, the portals, the um, bulls being put inside locked trailers through metal. And um, so George Knapp asked Bob Bigelow, what was it all about? You had this ranch for all these years. What was the bottom line? And he said quite quickly exactly what I say. He called it signaling. He, he said it's it, it's a, or messaging. He said it's all about messaging. It's about gaming and messaging. That's what it's about. And that was his conclusion is that basically the things that were happening at Skinwalker Ranch were there to uh, send messages. Now getting back to my initial uh, interest in the, the nuclear weapons subject and um, other incidents of, of nuclear weapons that I've um, got in, in terms of cases, talking to people and stuff like that, is that my um, experience started in 1975. I've told the story a few times. Um, the, the sighting started in Carmen, Manitoba, which is about maybe 30 miles north of the Canadian-American border. And people were seeing this thing quite often. And uh, we went out not till May. We were going to go in February. We didn't go. And then in May, the local TV station caught this thing jumping off the ground. And then at that point, uh, we went out to see whatever we were looking at. Happened to see this object fly in front of the car the first night. Second night, it flew right at me made this left-hand turn and sort of flew off. And I was sort of wondering, what is going on? Like, you know, what is this? And why is it in this little town called Carmen, Manitoba? It was a town of about 2,000 people, had nothing, no industry of any note, uh, no weapons factories, no nuclear stuff, no of anything, just a small town in the middle of a farming district where a lot of wheat was grown. And it, but it was there, and so it was not until 35 years later I caught this um, connection that I'm talking about today, is I could never figure out why they had come to this small town. Why did we have this huge flap of sightings? And I went and uh, I was giving a lecture at Eureka Springs, Arkansas, and I went back to Carmen to talk to Bob Demert, who was the guy who was at the center of this thing. He owned the airport in Carmen, and he was sort of like the tourist guide, all the TV stations, and people would come in trying to film this thing and trying to find out what was going on. And um, so I went back to talk to him. He had the most sightings of anybody. He knew everybody in town. He knew who had had sightings. And I said, Bob, why why did they come to Carmen? I, I've never been able to figure this out. And this is, again, about 35 years after the initial 1975 sightings. And he said you know why they were here? And I said, no, I don't. I've always been puzzled. Why did they come to Carmen, Manitoba? And he said, I told you why they're here. And I said, well, I don't, I don't remember. And he said, the nukes, I told you it had to do with the nukes. They were coming from the United States. We'd sit up in the, in uh, a town called Miami, Manitoba. We we're up on the hill and they could watch the whole valley floor. 
and these things would come in from the United States, and we used to have jokes that they were coming in from the United States uh, because the American beer didn't have as much alcohol in it, and they were coming to make a beer run. They were picking up beer and taking it back to the United States. But we could, that was the joke that I used, is we could never figure out what, what the heck were they doing in, in this small town, and in huge numbers. They were there almost for a year, day in, day out. And so once he said the nukes, I knew um, that he, he this is what it was all about. And he said, I remember I told you, he told about a guy, they had a, um, they had one over top of a nuclear silo, and there are no nuclear weapons in Canada. So it's not until you cross the border that um, these weapons are there. But we'd all seen them. Everybody travels to North Dakota, and we'd all seen these silos. And we knew if there was ever a nuclear exchange, we were gone because every 10th Russian rocket would, would fall short of the target right on top of us. So we always knew we were on the edge of distinction in terms of these nuclear weapons that were on the other side of the uh, Canadian-U.S. border. And what I learned later after talking to Bob when I started looking at this nuclear connection is that, well, first Bob said that he had had these guys, they had it over a nuclear weapons uh, or a, a nuclear silo. And they had been ordered to ram it. And the one guy he had talked to had been at a, a bar on the U.S.-Canadian border. And this guy told him this story that he was one of the people that was told to ram this thing. And he decided at the last minute it really wasn't worth his life to do this. And he pulled out of the formation. And according to what he told Bob Deemer, this, this thing just went straight up where he had, was supposed to have gone in. And so Bob said, remember, I told you that story. I told you that story in 1975. This guy was telling me the story that they, they had them over top of the, the nuclear silos. They knew they were there. And uh, he believed that they, because they were chasing these things, that's why they were coming into Canada, because the U.S. Air Force was chasing these things. Later on, there was something that made much more sense. And that was that in February of 1975, or even a little bit before that, the Americans started to build what was called the Stanley R. Mickelson Safeguard Complex, and from Wikipedia, I'll read what, the, what they describe this. It was a cluster of military facilities near Langdon, North Dakota. So we're just talking maybe you know, 10, 20 miles on the other side of the border that supported the U United States Army's Safeguard Anti-Ballistic Missile Program. The complex provided launch and control for 30 LIM-49 Spartan anti-ballistic missiles and 70 shorter-range sprint anti-ballistic missiles. The thing to remember here is always the joke that North Dakota is a very sort of insignificant state, but if it had been a country, it would have been a nuclear superpower. They had 300 nuclear missiles, and that included like the Miniman 3 with three warheads on them. They had two different um, fields. One was the Minot field, which is still there and still operational. And where I went in 19, uh, a couple of years back uh, with a witness, one of three witnesses who, uh, as young girls, uh, witnessed a UFO coming out of a, uh, right out of the silo, right out of where the, where the missile comes out, right through the metal, this object had come up. All three girls had seen this thing. And uh, so they had the Minot field, which had 150 um, um, silos there. And then the Grand Forks field, which is where um, we were seeing it because we were north of Grand Forks. The Grand Forks missiles were all taken out in the 1990s, but the, um, the um, ones at Minot are all still operational, 150 of them. So there was actually going to be three. And what, what the idea was, because there's 300 nuclear missiles in North Dakota, and the idea is that you have to protect the missiles. The number one target of 
the Soviets and the Chinese or whoever is uh, going to try to bomb them is not American cities. You can take out American cities, but that's not going to get you anywhere because if you don't take out the American missiles before you take out the cities, you're not going to see what happens because you're gone. So the number one target of uh, all the adversaries of the United States would be these missile silos. And the number one key target was North Dakota because they had 300 nuclear missiles. Now, why the UFOs, my impression was why the UFOs started on our side of the border was not because they were being chased by U.S. Air Force, but because they had put in this anti-ballistic missile unit. They had put in another hundred nuclear missiles. So the, 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 the uh, LIM-49 Spartan ones were uh, large missiles, I think with five megaton warheads on them, where it was like a Star Wars type thing where the, the Russians would launch over the pole, they would see it, they'd pick it up in a, they had a big huge solar array, which is a little bit farther away towards the Canadian border. They would pick up the missile, incoming missile, and they would try to take it out as it was in outer space with the Spartan missile. If that missed, then they had these very short, uh, very fast sprint missiles, uh, short-range sprint missiles with one megaton warheads that would be detonated, would go up as if they missed it coming in, as it was coming in through the atmosphere, it would create this sort of um, blow up just below it and create a cloud of uh, debris in which the would shred the missile as it was coming in to stop it from hitting the target. So there was originally going to be three locations for these anti-ballistic missiles. They were going to put in three according to the negotiations between the Russians and the Americans. One was at Whiteman Air Force Base uh, in Missouri. The other one was Malmstrom Air Force Base in Montana and the Grand Forks Air Force um, facility in North Dakota. And these were to protect all the important strategic weapon assets in the along the Canadian-U.S. border because most of the, the missiles were along the Canadian-U.S. border because it was the, the closest to, uh, to Russia in, in terms of getting them as they were coming into the United States. Now, they spent $6 billion on this um, Mickelson uh, site and I'll keep reading here. The deployment area of the complex covered the Minuteman launchers of the 321 Strategic Missile Wing that was based at Grand Forks Air Force Base in North Dakota. Under the terms of the 1972 Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, the U.S. was permitted to deploy a single ABM system protecting an area containing ICBM launchers. The total of 100 launchers and 100 missiles was the maximum permitted under the, under the treaty. So this is what happened. The, the North Dakota had 300 missiles. Then they added these in, in 1975. When the sighting started, they added 100 new nuclear missiles, these new um, other missiles. And that's when the sighting started. Once they put in these 100 new nuclear missiles, which would give them 400 nuclear missiles in, in North Dakota. And, and that's when all the sighting started on our side. The, uh, the site achieved initial operating capacity on April the 1st, 1975. So they were putting them in before then. The sighting started two months before that in February of 1975. And the uh, re reached full co operational capacity on October the 1st, 1975. And it cost uh, $15 adjusted for inflation. Uh, the House of Representatives voted to decommission the project on October the 2nd, 1975, and after they deemed it ineffective. The complex was deactivated on the 10th of February, 1976, less than a year of operation and 24 hours of full operational capacity. Uh, 
Um, the key to that is that's when the sighting started. As soon as they decommissioned these 100 nuclear missiles and started and took them out, that's when the sightings stopped on our side of the border. Until then, it was almost daily, these sightings. The, the weird thing about this was that they had um, spent 15 or $16 billion in 1975 money to build this thing, and it was actually sold to the Spring Creek Hutterite colony of Forbes, North Dakota, at auction for $530,000. So they kind of lost a little bit of money on that. So that's how it started for me. That's why I knew there was this connection to um, nuclear missiles. Uh, that explained why this uh, why this town on our side, and it was not just the Carmen, there was a bunch of towns near the border um, there. I even had an uncle who lived right on the border, like within a mile of the border. Uh, they had a landing site, which was written up in Tales of Charlie Red Star, uh, there was two missiles very close uh, to that site as well, within maybe uh, 10 or 15 miles. So these um, uh, sightings were all over the southern part of Manitoba. And I even went down in um, 1976. We had what were called ground lights on the, on the ground in uh, Manitoba. First, we had the big ones flying around. Then these small things started to appear on the ground. And I was informed that there was ground lights in the Minot field. So I actually made a trip in about 1976 to the um, missile, where all the missiles were in, in the Minot uh, Air Force Base area, to a town north of Bismarck, North Dakota. And I can't remember the name of the town. It was a little tiny town. And I remember I had my slides of these ground lights, and they were seeing these things as well. They were following cars around. They uh, looked like white um, sort of big balls that would sit on the roads and stuff like that. And I said, that's exactly what time we're getting here. Exactly. So I went down, I lectured. I remember being at the, um, the town hall. It was just this town. I mean, it was like one store type town. And the town hall it was absolutely jammed. It was just people coming out the, the doors. It was just unbelievable. And all these people had, had, had been reporting this kind of stuff. So we had the, the same sort of connection. And at that time, I really didn't realize it was the missile field. I just realized that there was this strange town and area north of... Um, Bismarck, North Dakota, was also having these um, sort of encounters uh, with UFOs. Back in the day, I used to work with Bob Pratt because he came up from the National Choir twice to do a story on the Manitoba sighting. So I got to know him fairly well, and we would talk, and as he, we were running around, I was taking him on a tour of all these different people who were from the different towns who had seen things. He was doing the interviews, but meanwhile, as we were going from town to town, he was telling me stuff that he was working on. And people have to realize that what happens now didn't happen then. It was a completely different world. There was no internet. That we had a, a you know a, a, you know a phone that cost huge money to uh, make long distance phone calls. We had a pen and a piece of paper. That was it. I mean that's how it was done. There was no cheap phone calls, free phone calls. There was no internet. There was no chat boards. There was no teleconferencing. There was none of this kind of stuff. It was very very uh, basic. So he was telling me stories of, of stuff that was going on at that time. And um, he, for example, he did the Travis Walton. And I'll, well, I'll talk about that in a minute. But he, one of the big stories that he was doing at the time was the Sandy Larson abduction, which had also occurred in North Dakota. So there was not that many abductions. Uh, um, Travis was taken in November of 1975. My sighting, first sighting was May 1975. Uh, the Sandy Larson was in August of 1975, and it was a big National Enquirer story. Bob was following this story, so he was following that story, the Pascagoula story, 
And at that time, all we had was the Betty and Barney Hill abduction, uh, an abduction for a police officer in Nebraska in 67, Pascagoula in 73, and then the Travis Walton thing started in 75. But then nobody was talking about abductions. There was only these one or two abductions. But this, so when in August 1975, when Sandy Larson was taken, and she described eight to ten objects that she encountered, uh, the classic abduction experience, but the not grays, they were looked like mummies, weird looking mummy things with her boyfriend. Um, she was um, later on. I I went to to check her sighting when I started looking at the nuclear thing, and sure enough, she was taken to a place called Beaver, North Dakota. And it's just outside of um, uh, the, t the city of uh, Fargo, North Dakota. And again, we all travel down there. So when you're going to the east, to the west coast, you go to Fargo and you turn right and you go down uh, Highway 94 all the way through to the west coast. So this was about maybe 20 miles um, west of Fargo at a place called Beaver, North Dakota. And when you looked on the map, sure enough, there was within the place on the curb in the road where she claimed to have been taken, uh, there was two nuclear missile silos. Within five miles, there was the one, um, it's been taken out because all the Grand Forks missiles were taken out. Uh, I went there with Desta and we tried to find where the missile silo was. We had the exact sort of uh, location and the missile silo had been taken out. You really couldn't tell, but um, from where I saw, you may have even been able to see that missile silo from the, the highway where she was taken. So you start when that's the thing is when I started to look at the nuclear thing, and that's why I'm doing this series. When you start looking at the nuclear thing, and you say, you know, is this a random phenomenon? You start to realize there is a way more connections to events than just random people being abducted and random uh, missile silos being turned off. Um, now, another thing that I mentioned, we had Sandy Larson, and the other one that was Stan Romanek. If people know the Stan Romanek story, Stan Romanek grew up in North Dakota. Uh, his his father was connected to the nuclear missiles, and he tells a story. Now, this is a story not, nobody really knows. He had some documents and stuff, but that was one of the things I talked to him about, which missile was it, and again, you have this connection with him and this connection to missile silos that most people don't know. He was in this same field that I believe was connected to the sightings that we were seeing. Now, this is where we start to get this this whole idea that um, um, there's there's other connections and what, because I've done the consciousness thing, I think that there's a lot less random events than people might realize. People think everything's random, but if consciousness is primary, and this is, has been said, uh, like Max Planck said, as a man who has devoted his whole life to the most clear-headed science to the study of matter, I can tell you as a result of my research about the atoms this much. There is no matter as such. All matter originates and exists only by virtue of a force, which brings the particles of an atom to a vibration and holds this most minute solar system of the atom together. We must assume behind this force the existence of a consciousness, a conscious and intelligent mind. This mind is the matrix of all matter. And that's where you get down to. If you take a look at the first uh, hydrogen atom and you, you take a look at the, the idea that it's moving, uh, according you know some figures, that it's moving at 2,200 kilometers a second. And if it's always been an atom together, it's, it's been there for 13.7 billion years. So how did this 
um, electron know exactly where to go? How did it get to this speed? How, how does it develop? How does it, how did, does, it, does it evolve? How, and this is what Max Planck is saying, that he believes that all matter originates and exists only by a force which brings the particle of an atom to vibration and holds this mi most minute solar system of the atom together. And this is the, gets to the concept that um, things are not as random as we think they are. We think it's random objects that bang into each other that create matter, which then create consciousness. And the bottom line is, it's the other way around. So if it's all consciousness, consciousness is controlling exactly what's happening at every level of reality, and there may not be random things. So when you come to the nuclear weapons, you start looking at this thing, is this stuff random? Are these things random? And when I started to look at the nuclear missiles and the events of world history, I started to re realize this was not random at all. In fact, I'm having a conversation with um, David Perkins, who has been working on cattle relations for 40 years, and he and I are sorry, he, I, he picked up, or I picked up something that he had talked about that seemed to be the same sort of thing. The way I look at it, because nobody's ever been caught doing a cattle mutilation, is that this may actually be something that just occurs. That this is part of, um, uh, almost like they were referring to like a thermostat. That um, when the Earth um, consciousness reaches certain elements and does certain things, that it's like a boil breaking out on, on the body of, of, of a person. That it just, it comes. The same as you have other things where a cut gets healed, all the stuff gets together, all the atoms know exactly what they're going to do, all the cells know what they're going to do, and they all are altruistic, and why would they want to save? It's like the aliens, why would your body want to save you from a cut? Uh, that's how it works. It's, it's this sort of idea that the, uh, the Gaia, the universe, is uh, producing boils and is producing healing, that, that in it, based upon what the actions are, what the consciousness is. And so when I looked at the... Um, the nuclear missiles, I started to see these connections that um, a lot of nuclear missile incidents uh, were connected to world events. And I'll, through these, uh, I'm probably not going to do it in this one today, but I'll do some of these these um, events to show you. The main one that, that I had, because I was trying to figure out um, with the nuclear missiles in 1975, is, is one of the things I always point out is that my first sighting occurred just a couple of days after the end of the Vietnam War. So what had happened is the Americans had left Vietnam and had left all the troops, in, um, basically had no troops in Southeast Asia, except for maybe um, uh, Korea, but that was um, um, a, a little bit earlier. Um, so you have a situation where people may not realize at that time the political theory was what's called the domino theory and most people are not familiar with it now uh, when I was at university I actually studied political studies as my major and I was studying criminology which was the study of the Soviet Union um, hierarchy and it was like a UFO game it was like what are they doing because they would never say anything directly you have to read between the lines uh, where some guy would be um, demoted to he would be uh, uh, promoted, they would say promoted to the agriculture minister, and you'd know the guy was gone because uh, they were always having uh, disasters with the crops. So if you got moved to the agriculture minister, they knew you were out of there. So we had done, uh, I had done this, you know, course on uh, Soviet government, and at that time the idea was the domino theory that um, we had, you know, countries would fall like dominoes. That one, the communists would take over one country, and then the next country, and the next country. And at some point, um, people would have to make a stand to stop it. And so in 1975, um, Laos had fallen, the, the communist Cambodia had fallen. 
uh, North Vietnam had fallen, South Vietnam, all these countries, and it was the idea was, well, where the, what are they going to take next? Are they going to take Indonesia? Are they going to take South, South Korea? Are they going to go after the Philippines? And the key was that you don't have any troops there. So how are you going to stop them? They've, they've got all the troops in, in all these different countries. And you're on the other side of the world. You have no supply lines to go there. How can you do it? And that's where I thought that there was this activation of nuclear missiles thinking in 1975 is that if the Russians decide to take Indonesia or uh, the Philippines or something, we may have to use the nuclear weapons because we haven't got any troops there. We have to stop them. We have to stop because that was the predominant theory. It was this domino theory that we have got to stop these countries from falling um, to communism. So at the end of 1975, we actually have an incident, um, and this was uh, leaked by a guy, um, I believe Bob. Bob showed me the document. I was there when this happened. So there was a, a doc. There was two documents. There was the F4 over uh, Baghdad, and the guy that was the DIA guy that was brought in on that case was a guy by the name Major Roland B. Um, Evans. And I believe he was the guy that phoned uh, researcher Bill Moore when um, his whole encounter with uh, government agents started. He was phoned from off at Air Force Base. So this um, uh, major was at, at from DIA was at um, Offutt. And he was on this case where the F-4 was shut down, where they locked onto the UFO and then the whole plane just shut down. And that was leaked, according to what I was told. That was leaked by Evans. And the other document that he leaked was the 1975, this is what I want to talk about now, the 1975 uh, NORAD document, which um, talks about the incursions to nuclear weapons storage areas along the Canadian-U.S. border. Now, I remember Bob showing me at that time, they they got the leak that this document existed, and Bob had filed, from the National Enquirer, had filed an FOIA to get the document, and I remember him showing me, and they wanted $850 for search fees. And I said, wow. I mean, I figured, like, oh, you're not, you're not going to bill for it. And I said, 850 bucks. He said, oh, yeah, we got lots of money. We'll pay for that. No problem. It was like, because National Wire had huge amounts of money. And so they did it, and they got the document, and this document came out. And what it basically talks about is incursions along the U.S.-Canada border at exactly the same time that we were having the sightings on our side. Uh, above North Dakota. So there was uh, Loring Air Force Base, which had the B-52s out of uh, Maine. Uh, they were inside the weapon storage areas where the nuclear weapons were in late October and early November. Uh, they were at um, Wurtsmouth Air Force Base, which is in northern was in northern Michigan, uh, in their nuclear weapon storage area. They were in Minot, which is the, the, what I mentioned earlier, which is south of me and the a little bit um, west of the Grand Forks site, uh, the Minot field. They were at Minot shutting down uh, missiles there, and they were also at um, uh, Maltstrom Air Force Base. And so four different incursions in late 1975. And the key to that whole thing was when you look at events, you see that Travis Walton was taken right in the middle of that whole thing. Right between all those things, it was about a week and a half period, Travis was taken in the middle of that thing. So when I saw that, that again, that sort of confirmed to me that this thing may not be as random as um, we've been led to believe. One of the things, and I'll sort of end with this and maybe start another one um, 
the idea that the um, the the intelligence behind the UFOs is, is knows what they're doing. If you take UFO experiences, you'll see that UFO experiences forty percent will say at one point during their experience they knew the answer to everything in the universe, which indicates the possibility that there's no time, there's no space, there's um, everything's happening at, at the same time, and that all the answers are in the field. So. If these people are reporting this, this is not one person, this is 40% of experiences say they knew the answer to everything in the universe, or 20% say they knew the answer about everything about themselves. So if, if that's true, if all of this stuff is in the field, all the answers are in the field, well then the intelligence who gave the experiencers access to that field and then took it away as they came back into normal consciousness, the intelligence behind the UFO phenomena already has the answer to everything. They have, they, they have access to this field. And we always have this thing, oh, they're here to study us or to learn love or both. <laughs> it would appear to me if, if these people are reporting accurately that they knew everything when they were in the experience. Same as near-death experience people. 31% of all people who've had near-death experience will say at one point during their experience they knew that in the universe, which would indicate that maybe everything is already here. So this would indicate that the um, intelligence can tap into this field and they know exactly what's going on. One of the things that seems to prove this is that if you uh, look at um, the work done by Robert Hastings, you see two things. Number one, you see Robert Hastings is an experiencer, which indicates this is all tied together. This is not random events. The fact that Robert Hastings would be an experiencer and then get into nuclear weapons, the same as he wrote the book with, with um, uh, Dave, um, Jacobs, who did the filming of the, the UFO incursion with the... Um, where the missile was taken out by the UFOs, he's also an experiencer. So is that random? Or that Robert Salas, who was in the silos at Maltstrom Air Force Base when they shut the missile silos down, is also an experiencer. He's dealt with these beings his whole life. And you start to see this thing may be a lot less random than people think it is. Here's the example that, that Robert Hastings brings up. 1940, the UFOs were already around Hanford Nuclear facility where they were getting building the stuff for the bombs so five years before we detonated the first atomic bomb they already knew what was going on they knew that we this this work was going on they were around hanford which means it's a lot less random than people think it is so in the next broadcast i'll sort of go through some of the events that i looked at that show you um the connection because once you see the connection that's what i started to look at if it's if it's not random there should be connections between events uh, nuclear events and uh, UFO events, and you start looking and you start finding them. They're very, very numerous. So I'll leave it at that for today, and we'll move on uh, the next time to looking at some of the incidents where there's a it seems to be a direct connection between UFOs, nukes, and particularly world events. Thanks. That's this week's episode of the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host, Grant Cameron, hoping that you will join me for upcoming episodes. Links to my YouTube interviews, books, and my Facebook sites are in the show notes. If you love the podcast or learn something valuable, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, or give a review on today's episode. If you would like a certain paranormal subject dealt with in the future, please let us know. Until next time, watch this space, and thank you so much for listening.